I'm Sambhavi. And I'm Lakshman. And welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast, Diaspora Dialogues, a deep dive into the country of Sri Lanka through the eyes of subject matter experts on the ground. So far in our first season, we have covered the impact of COVID-19 on Sri Lanka's rural economy, as well as political activism, media freedom, and challenges to democracy in the context of recent constitutional changes. Our experts have helped us understand how these issues have impacted minority communities and how the Sri Lankan diaspora can meaningfully contribute to constructive change in the country. Today, we'll start our exploration into how NGOs are creating sustainable change in complex post-war contexts for the rural poor of Sri Lanka. Today, we're speaking to Tammy Pararajasingham, the Head of Social and Community Impact at Uniting Care New South Wales, as well as the co-founder and, and board member of Palmera, a diaspora-led NGO that helps vulnerable families in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia have access to a living income. This work is close to our heart, having visited Palmer's great work in Sri Lanka in 2018. If you'd like to find out more about their projects, go check out their website. We hope you enjoy, and as always, if you find these conversations interesting or helpful, please share the word within your circles. So my name is Tammy Pararajasingham. I am a Tamil Australian, uh, grew up in Australia, educated here, and um, have ended up working in uh, uh, community development work through a pathway of economic development and previously corporate finance. So like many, I think Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora thought I was going to be an accountant and um, did that for a while, but very, very soon, um, especially through my experiences volunteering in Sri Lanka and India, found that I had a passion for uh, development work. I didn't even know it could be a job uh, when I first approached the kind of uh, the, the sector, um, but then studied uh, international development and have worked in Sri Lanka, India, Cambodia, and a little bit of work in Mexico as well. That, so, that is so cool. Um, we <laughs> yeah. normally do this at the end, but I thought yeah. maybe we do this from the start. Is that sure. we like to end by talking about how the diaspora can help? But I think with you, it's mm. a very pertinent question. Um, what's yep. the sector like here in Australia, and you know how are diaspora getting involved in the more professional sense? Like you, I know there's a big fundraiser movement. I know there's a big yeah. uh, community involvement, but in terms of the professional charity space and the not-for-profit space, yeah. Um, I yeah, I think I've seen in the last sort of ten years more and more of diaspora moving into this work professionally so moving past so it being you know a hobby or a volunteering thing to um something that we pursue with technical expertise and i often think of what a privilege this work is to do you know i come from a family of do-gooders and you know social justice warriors who did all this stuff as a side hustle out of passion and you know as a volunteer and i get to do this as a job I get paid to do this and um, I love that the diaspora is widening its uh, sense of what it means to be a professional and moving into this sector you know pe people like you guys um, I meet more and more all the time and um, you know taking this stuff really seriously and taking um, a like our skills from other sectors and transferring them so you know the kind of transferable skill sets um, and the flexibility and the and the courage it takes to to do that as well. I definitely think courage is a big thing there. Absolutely. I mean yeah, yeah. I left um, 
quite a lucrative career. Mm. I worked, used to work for Coca-Cola Amateur when I quit as a grad, you know, like back in the day, it was like, you know, a really highly coveted position. I got like a sign up bonus and it was incredible. And I, as even as I was interviewing for that job, knew that I didn't want to do it. And um, the person who interviewed me said, do you really want this? Maybe you sound like you're really passionate about other stuff. And I somehow got my way through it and got offered the job. But as soon as I started it, I started looking into how I could get into international development and spent a couple of years just saving up and like leaving a high paid career to do something that was a little bit un, like, like I didn't know what it was. I didn't know, really know if I, if I, if there was a career path in it, um, felt, felt really natural for me, but I know lots of people were like, wow, that's so courageous. But I was like, well, I'm pretty unhappy in this other work. So it felt like I had no other option at the time. It's funny because like I'm going through a career transition yes. right now. I know a lot of people yes. kind of want to, but don't really want to yeah. make that first step. Mm. Uh, and it's quite a terrifying first step. Maybe not, maybe not for you, but I know for a yeah. lot of people kind of walking away from what you've always known. Yes. Yes. What is the Australian sector like? And what are like the pathways into that? Like, do you need to go study it in university? Like obviously yeah. through accounting is other pathways. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, so I, probably chose like a pathway that suited me, which was to um, get some more ed uh, educational qualifications around it. So I um, studied, did a master's of development studies. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, uh, I have seen people transfer to, to the sector, you know, without those qualifications. I would say that for me, that was really, really helpful uh, opportunity to learn because I, I found myself like being able to move past a programmatic view of development to systemic views of development. Um, and so that helped, that has helped me enormously, even as I transitioned out of international development, working in the Australian context, working for um, the community sector here, understanding how, you know, policy advocacy and programming all works together um, has been really critical. And like, you know, understanding the concept of what is it, what does success or what does impact actually mean? Um, the, the studies for me helped me to do that, but volunteering is also another really popular way to get into the sector. Um, you know, using your skill sets to contribute to the work of an existing project or NGO, and then um, building your work experience through that as well. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you to do something really unreasonable on the back of that. Yes. Can you can you demystify for us very quickly what you think the meaning of impact is? Because, <laughs> like, very quickly, like the sucker, sure. the, the, the one hundred word version. You know what I mean? Like, I can give you even shorter. I can say it is um, a positive and lasting change in an individual's life as well as a community um, community sense of that as well. So. Um, we talk about impact being sustainable. So an impact that is not just about today, not at the compromise of others or a natural resource, but a, uh, a positive change that is for an individual, a community and, and the environment. And do you think that like, when it comes to community, would you weight that as important as the individual? Because Absolutely. obviously we, we don't think of that way. Like, you know, if you look at the way World Vision, it's like, you know, a dollar a day for this child, right? We, we, we don't often mention the community in that space. Absolutely. So I think if you think about like uh, what it means to see uh, someone flourish, an individual thrive and flourish, they need they need their whole um, community to flourish. An individual cannot flourish if the if the people around them don't either. Um, yeah. And you know, just that idea of like stepping back and looking at the individual in their context in a, you know, an ecological model of them in their family, um, them in their, in their community, them in the, in the system of governance.
of the country that they live in. Uh, you need all of those factors to be developing and flourishing for the individual to achieve any kind of social impact. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that this sector has undergone a lot of change recently. We had like Esther DeFlow and Abhijit Banerjee win the, the Nobel Prize for Developmental Economics. Yes. Like, I, I think there's been a lot more of that movement in terms of educating the public and a lot of publications coming out, a lot of books coming out. Yes. Um, could you speak at a very high level at how that developmental space has shifted in practice in, in, that, in a country such as Sri Lanka or similar to? Sure. So, I mean, the biggest thing that's come out in the last sort of 15, 20 years is this idea of sustainable development. And, you know, the sustainable development goals are, you know, what's set at a very high level for every country to pursue. Um, and what they do is provide a holistic definition of what we mean by development. So, you know, in a, in a sort of very classic, uh, you know, um, industrial revolution sense, economic development was achieved at the at the compromise or at the at the cost of the environment and often of, of social equity as well so um, in the last sort of 15 20 years what we've seen is development definitions broaden and become more holistic so we think about what can we uh, achieve development without compromising on the future generations um, uh, prosperity as well and that includes natural resources um, and so Often in the, you know, if Ram, um, if Ram was here, we would have talked about negative externalities in, <laughs> in economic development. So like, how can we, how can we get the right balance between um, the economic outcomes, um, the uh, social equity and environmental protection? And, you know, finding the balance between those three things is where, you, you know, you should ideally find your sweet spot of sustainable development. Okay. So we're kind of using this composition as like a springboard into this pretty mm. complex space where we obviously yeah. know there's a lot of like confounding yeah. and complicating factors. Mm. If we use, if you want to maybe introduce Palmyra and use it as a case study, yeah. can we speak to what you just spoke about with regards to Sri Lanka? Sure. So, um, so Palmyra is, uh, well, an organization that all three of us are involved with. <laughs> um, I am one of the co-founders and chairs of the organization and, uh, and it, it is about delivering economic development programs, but um, for uh, communities in the north and east. And we've been around for a long time, but over the last sort of five years, have really honed in on the design of our programs um, with the view of develop, de delivering this idea of sustainable development. So, um, you know, I've already talked about, you know, the, the compromise between economic and uh, environmental outcomes. But this idea of social equity is also really important to get right. So one of the things that's, that we have to do is work with the whole community uh, and be there for a long time <laughs> because change yeah. doesn't happen overnight. Um, what, um, one of the things I saw when I was working in Cambodia, which is really, really sad, was I came there, I went there in 2009 and it had just seen this incredible sort of uh, flow of development resources coming in. And then at the time, Afghanistan became really, really popular. And when I, when I joined um, some of these uh, small local NGOs, all this money was just flooding out of Cambodia and into other parts of the world mm. through bilateral um, agencies like DFID and USAID and even ADFAT. And um, what was really sad was these, some of these projects were just getting traction after mm. five or 10 years. And it was frustrating to see this stuff just, just be disintegrated overnight. Um, so, you know, for Palmyra and for good development to happen, you really need to be there for the long term mm. and you need to focus on your community of interest and you've got to think about things holistically. So 
um, what development uh, you might, you know, teach someone to fish, but are you thinking about the equity uh, issues around that community? Like, um, can women fish? Uh, do pe how do people with disabilities get access to fishing rods? All of those sorts of questions. So it's all the questions around just like teaching someone to fish. Yeah, wow. And I guess 2020 has kind of been a year from yeah. hell, right? <laughs> even in Sri Lanka, we had the floods, let alone yes. COVID. And now we've yes. had the election, which was kind of spoken at length recently about as well. Yeah. What? How do these kind of tides kind of rock the boat, so to speak? And if you're telling me it takes five to 10 years, which is a crazy amount of time, considering yeah. the paradigm mm. we have as you know, mm. consumers of this stuff, as, as donators or you know, mm. people who consume the output of your work, yeah. how did these kind of specific issues, which can, you know, completely take that timeline, can stretch that out or blow it out, right? Yeah. How, how has Palmera navigated that or experienced that in 2020? Yeah. So I think it's about having, um, being being able to be responsive when you need to respond to crisis. There's no, you know, reality is there will always be natural disasters and um, things like this, which are unpredictable. And we, as a community, need to be able to respond. And, you know, the diaspora is particularly strong at doing that. We can band together and raise you know, insane amounts of money and mobilize resources very quickly. But the work that Palmera does is also thinking about how do you build resilient communities so that they themselves can respond when these things happen. So I think one of the most incredible things about COVID-19 that um, Palmera has seen is um, how some of the women's savings groups in the, in the villages have actually been able to um, support people who have not been able to, who have not have lost income due to COVID-19. So you see in those circumstances, not a, you know, a, a look to the diaspora, not a look to, you know, other NGOs, but communities looking to themselves and finding, you know, their own resources and own, using their own wealth to support them, support them and build um, community, which is basically community resilience. Mm. It's, um, it's amazing. Um, Tammy, like if I could, if I could jump yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess coming from a non, uh, you know, non-developmental uh, background, um, I, I don't have like a very, um, you know, very good understanding, I think, of the of the area. But, you know, just coming with um, you and Abs and, and the others on, on the Palmera trip last time, like we really got to see, um, I guess, the change on the ground um, firsthand. Um, I guess like with implementing development work, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, regional and um, country-specific yeah. barriers um, and context that you have to evaluate. Mm. Um, change is quite difficult, you know, to implement unless you mm. are aware of those context contextual differences. Yeah. Um, any particular barriers that you find in Sri Lankan in society or particular barriers that Palmera faces, which is quite hard um, to implement change, I, I guess? And yeah. I mean, look, it's hard to talk about Sri Lanka without talking about political context. Um, <laughs> Um, the country, you know, has seen not just 30 years of internal conflict, but, you know, in the, in the 10 years since then, um, quite a lot of political turmoil and what I would see as pretty weak institutional capacity for a country. So, you know, on the surface, Sri Lanka is really interesting. You know, it looks like, um, things aren't that bad, you know, universal health, health and education, life expectancy is high you know uh, unemployment's at like five percent these are all like good statistics it looks pretty good but um sri lanka because of its you know political context has lots of challenges um you know poverty is 
deeply entrenched in some areas, um, the, especially the war affected regions. Uh, it's like, you know, it's a you know, country or has always been a country of uh, two halves. And then you slap on top of that very weak institutional capacity and not a strong amount of political will when it comes to sustainable development, lots of interministerial conflict, uh, a fragmented and short term vision. I mean, it's like a recipe for um, mm. for disaster when it comes mm. to navigating, you know, the, the pathway to uh, um, sustainable development. And then, you know, uh, the other part of it is like a real lack of reliable and um, relevant and recent data. So, you know, Palmeiras invest a lot in data collection and building its own data sets, um, which, you know, ideally would, would be available and be reliable. Um, in order to know, you know, are we delivering outcomes? Yeah, that, that's interesting that that infrastructure is hard it's, to access. And exactly. Or and even changing, Yeah, and then, you know, like changing policy, um, you know, the the view of the government on international NGOs, the view, the, you know, the, um, a, a large amount of scepticism around the role of um, uh, diaspora organisations, um, and then on top of that, an interest in doing capital works rather than sort of livelihoods, education or health programs. Um, the, these are real limitations to you know, Palmyra and many, many other NGOs. How important is uh, the data collection process, I think, to um, the models of development and, and kind of um, evaluating how effective uh, the changes and, and whatnot? Yeah, look, it's super 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 important but not straightforward <laughs> um uh you know like that old adage what measured gets managed um matters or matters like that's that's important you want to be collecting you want to know that what you're doing is working um so you collect data along the way to give you indicators of that um it's not that straightforward because some of the changes you want to see might um, not happen quickly and they may not be in bits of data that is easily accessible. Um, so it requires quite a bit of investment and quite a bit of thought and quite a bit of technical capability, to be honest. Um, so um, my advice is not to skimp on that stuff. And actually an organization that, that it's investing in that is an organization that genuinely cares about impact and wants to interrogate their own models um, and wants to improve. So, um, yeah, it's super important, but not easily done. <laughs> I, I think data collection I've heard is, is one of the most difficult um, yeah. aspects in, in development. Yeah. Um, so. Yes. Uh, so I work um, in Australia for an NGO, uh, one of the, like a very, very large NGO. Um, and I have a, a small impact measurement team. Um, and, you know, this is a really well-established NGO with, you know, 8,000 staff turning over $800 million a year. And we have an impact measurement team of three, um, uh, but we, you know, we have uh, business intelligence teams around that and stuff. And these guys um, this year piloted a program and uh, that gives you a sense how complex this is, mm. this piece of work is, mm. um, uh, but, uh, but it's still really, really critical. The, the issue for us as a sector is that the way we're funded um, uh, tends to prioritize or um, sort of reward output so you know how many people did you get into your program uh, how many mouths did you feed how many people graduated uh, not necessarily are people better off and that question of is anyone better off or who is better off and how are they better off is really really complex like if I asked you are you better off than you were last year 
that's not an easy question to answer. So imagine trying to answer it for people who live like thousands of kilometers away in a different cultural context um, and, you know, are private and wary of you. Um, that's, that's how complex it is, right down to a very human sort of level. Absolutely. That's incredibly <laughs> complex. And I, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a, um, you know, difficult um, thing to write, I think. So, um, yeah. Yeah, there are some great tools and lots of research around it. So there are ways to do it. But yes, it is, it is, it is complex. Do you find that you've got like two giant political stakeholders there? You, you do have the diaspora, which are like yes. a heavy weight. And then you've got the government, which are your, mm. your mm. absolute implementation hurdles. Mm. Like, is that a difficult thing to toe the line or do they broadly align or do they massively differ in, in, their, <laughs> in their incentives? Uh, I think they do differ. Like I think, um, you know, the, Diaspora, uh, you know, is well-meaning, but not always well-informed about what it takes to deliver good sustainable development. We have a history of great generosity and good intentions, but mm. as a diaspora, we're interested in still pretty, like, unsophisticated in our views mm-hmm. um, around, you know, we want to support children's homes and feeding programs. Um, it's not, it's kind of, like, you know, not that interesting or sexy to be funding um, institutional capacity building <laughs> um but as i said I, I feel like that is shifting with um with our generation um and then you know the government skepticism or you know sort of concern around the diaspora given the role they played in the in the conflict um is also a limitation so it's 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 tricky <laughs> i remember i fell in love with palmyra because i had an hour conversation where essentially abs pitched to me why i should not donate to the orphanage yeah. exclusively and I should go help build toilets and yeah. as a young 20 something year old I just it was horrible yeah. to hear this but to hear the reality of that yeah. it doesn't matter if you don't have basic sanitation right yeah. like it's one of the absolute principles that we got to we have to build this developmental change of and that was eye-opening for me exactly yeah my our last question um you know you gave a very interesting story of how to transition across and make mm. change from within but that that is you know well beyond the reach or perhaps not necessarily aligned with everyone that might be listening for someone who is genuinely passionate about making a change or making the Mm. right kind of change or the thoughtful kind of change Mm. how would you encourage people to become informed or to make that impact to support and align with an organization that is making that kind of thoughtful change what's what's your your short advice to them uh i mean sort of three steps firstly is like get informed read Mm -hmm. as much as you can um there's lots of great work that's so accessible now um, you know, start with like the Bornstein work of like how to change the world in a day at one step at a time work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, um, you know, become a donor, put your money where your mouth is um, mm-hmm. and make that in an informed way, like really research and scrutinize where your money is going. Does it contribute to long-term sustainable change? Um, uh, that's the second bit. And then the third bit is like, you know, what skill sets do you have that are transferable and useful? You know, the both of you are great examples of people who have great technical capabilities um, in a certain area and you're willing, you start, you start off by doing it on a volunteer basis. And before you know it, you'll be looking at professional opportunities. That's really interesting. That second point (laughs) of um, that second point that you mentioned about getting informed about where your money's going and making a change. Mm -hmm. That's easier said than done, right? If we had to really dumb it down, if yeah. I'm trying to assess the impact of a charity, I'm not an evaluator, right? Yeah. And I'm going to be making wild sweeping assumptions. Where am I going? Am I going to the annual reports? Am I going to their website? What, what, is that, what are those steps involved? Sure. I mean, annual reports are always a really great um, start. Um, you know, the 
the the thing about like uh, charities are they're not really well um, funded to do the kind of reporting that you'd expect from a corporate. Mm -hmm. So um, you'll probably see a couple of really nice stories, case studies. These are important. Um, And you might, if you're lucky, see some, you know, quantitative statistics, stats about about, uh, impact. But I'd be looking more carefully at what I call a theory of change, which is kind of a technical term, but Mm -hmm. is what, what is their belief or what is their idea on how their program contributes to long-term change? And, you know, you'd want to see looking for something that tells me um, we're going to do X because we believe it'll achieve Y in the short term and Z in the long term. And we're doing this because uh, and that you, you want to see layers to their programming. So not just we will feed these people so they won't be hungry now and they'll be healthy later. But what are you doing to ensure that people can feed themselves later? Like, that's the other bit. Is there an empowerment factor to their work? So that would be my um, very short advice on how to do